earliest memories are Sunday afternoons at my grandparents. My little sister and I were sitting on the divan. And my dad was in a chair over here, and his dad was in a chair over there, and they were just pouring shots, drinking shots, and gabbing with each other. And we just kind of sat there um, watching and listening. And um, that's something that my mother tells the story that I used to, one of my imaginary games before I could talk, was just sitting there like this. Um, little, it took her a while to figure out what it was I was doing. So anyway, um, I want to start with my parents because that's where I came from. Both my parents had been married prior to meeting each other. My, my mother got married straight out of college, and she married someone who had just gotten out of the service after World War II. She barely knew him, but I'm sure he was charming. Um, turned out that he was alcoholic and he beat her. And fortunately, she was able to divorce him and move on. Um, she had gotten an excellent education, and she probably had some good career options, but her main goal in life was to have a family. And that was because, in my opinion, when she was 15, her family was basically torn apart by the war and, her, and the Pacific Ocean. And so when she was 15, she ended up in one country and her parents ended up in another country. So, she met my dad in 1950. He was recuperating from a broken ankle from a car accident um, in which his first wife was killed. He was driving. Uh, I don't know if he was drinking or not, but I know years later I'd been in the car with him while he was drinking and driving. And sometimes he drove car with bald tires and bad brakes, and in those days we didn't have seatbelts, but thank goodness we're all here to um, tell the story. Uh, he worked in sales, um, and it didn't, I guess it wasn't very lucrative, because um, it seemed like there were a lot of financial worries. Um, one sign of that I learned later in life is that my mother wore just this simple wedding band. And it was something that my parents bought at the pawn shop, the same pawn shop where they hawked the fancier wedding ring. And they would buy it back and then they'd have to hawk it again. And eventually this is what she ended up with. Um, I remember her moaning and worrying and talking on the phone to relatives about how we were going to end up in the poor house. And that didn't sound like a good place to go. So that kind of made me worry too. But what worried me more was when my dad would come home from work, what mood would he be in? Would he be playful? Or would he be mean? Um, 
this was something that I could never predict. And if he was, when he was mean, that um, meant the night wasn't going to go very well. He, his personality was strict. He had a lot of rules. And um, even as a five-year-old, you know, I tried my best to obey all the rules. But there was a time when there was a rule he had that just didn't make sense to me, and I refused. And then we had a fight, my first fight. It was a verbal fight, and I wouldn't back down, but of course he wouldn't back down, so he won the fight. Um, and uh, later, um, probably one of my more common memories is when he would come home and decide that it was time to, he had to punish his children. And we would say, well, why? And he said, because you're kids. And kids are bad. They're just bad. And so I have to punish you. Um, this was kind of uh, mind-boggling to me because on the one hand, sure, in those days, parents spanked their kids. But usually, I knew why I was being spanked. I said no when I should have said yes. I didn't clean up my room or whatever. But sometimes, I didn't really understand why I was being hit. It was really just because I was a kid. Um, so the spank... Those spankings, um, were not only did they hurt physically, but they hurt me emotionally because it just didn't make sense. And at the age of eight, I was perplexed. I was bewildered. Like, isn't the parent is supposed to be right? The parent is supposed to know the truth. But... He has a different truth than I have. He has a different story than I have. And so can I trust this? But then again, he is the parent, so maybe I do deserve this. So I was getting double messages to myself. Like, maybe I am a bad person. Maybe I do deserve to be punished. Maybe people we love hurt us. So that made me kind of, well, actually depressed. And so one way I cope with that is I started thinking maybe I don't belong in this family. Maybe this is the wrong family. Maybe somehow, you know, something went wrong and I belong in another family. The family across the street had lots and lots of kids, mainly boys, and the oldest boy, his name was Bernie, and he had lots of younger brothers to keep track of. And in those days, you know, kids played on the street. And I remember him playing ball with his brothers, teaching them how to bat and catch and throw. He would tie their shoes for them. He would protect them when bullies would try to beat them up. He was the big brother, and that's what I wanted. Well, I never got the big brother, but um, I had a lot of friends that I played with and their families were really loving and supportive and they were my safe harbor. 
Um, sometimes, though, on the nights when, when my dad was in that bad mood and started punishing us, whether we deserved it or not, it meant it was really hard to go to sleep at night. And I would be afraid. I would be afraid that I would go to sleep and have nightmares. So I invented a dream machine. And I would just dial in my imagination some happy thoughts so I could get to sleep. So for the rest of my childhood and all through my teenage years, I had this alternate fantasy world in my head. And that's how I get to sleep every night. I would just go there. And it would be a different cast of characters, and there was no, nobody was mean, nobody was angry, nobody was crying. And it was a way for me to cope, to not dwell on all the hurt and anger or the uncertainty and worry about tomorrow. I just got to go there. It was safe. Um, as I had mentioned, um, my dad's work wasn't all that lucrative and my mom worried a lot about money. Um, there were times when I was sent to the door when the bill collectors came and told them my parents weren't home. And apparently, they wouldn't go away. I mean, they did that day, but they kept hounding my parents, and um, my parents decided to move. We'd, we were living in California. We had already moved from Massachusetts. Now we're going to move. Did I say we were living in California? We were living in New York. Sorry. <laughs> we're going to move to California. <laughs> this was really not good news to me because it meant that I was going to be, I was going to miss all of my friends and their families. And I had grandparents and a godmother who loved me. And I just did not want to leave. It was, in fact, like maybe not only had I ended up in the wrong family, it was an alien family who was abducting me and taking me to worlds unknown. And I was not only sad, but I was dreading where we would end up and what it would be like. But before we reached California, my dad um, dropped my mom and my sister and my brother and I off in Colorado where my aunt and her family lived and he went my dad went on to California to look for work and a place to live and the rest of us stayed in, in Colorado with my aunt's family and went to school there and so we had two families living under one roof and um, I was pretty depressed but I found a way out my again my imagination helped me, and I started becoming obsessed 
with drawing houses and not just what they looked like on the outside, but what they looked like on the inside. And there were, I would draw floor plans and I would go to the Sears and Roebuck catalog and I would pick out furniture for each and every room. And of course, I would have my own room because at that time, my mother, brother, sister, and I were all in one room. So that was my way of coping with feeling feeling out of touch with anything that I could relate to. It was a very difficult time for my family, of course, but for me, I didn't understand it. And so, again, I just kind of lived in this imaginary world. When we got to California, there were a lot of new things. For one thing, my mother had another baby. Um, and I was 11 by then, and so I got to be one of her little helpers with the baby. Um, and I made new friends, and um, at some point, I had the opportunity to take music lessons. So um, the public schools were very um, generous in those days, and uh, my parents were very supportive as well. Um, but we were, you know, it's not like we moved into this house and there was furniture. It wasn't, we didn't go to Sears and Roebuck. It was hand-me-downs and buy on time, and when we first got there, my sister and I shared a twin bed, you know, it was a big adjustment, but eventually things kind of got normal, but that normal was pretty rocky between my parents. So, turns out he was sleeping around, and then as a salesman, you know, it was very ordinary to take your clients out for a three martini lunch. Well, apparently, he didn't know when to stop those martinis, and eventually he lost his job. So then, he's trying to get work, and in the meantime, my mother's at home, and four kids to feed, and she's trying to figure out how she can help out. So she actually found some ways for my sister and I to go help other mothers, other working mothers, take care of their kids and clean their houses and make their dinners. And um, she also ended up borrowing money from her family. Um, I found this letter only recently that she had written to my aunt asking to borrow $100 because the checkbook was in, a, in the red. And she said that she was really kicking herself because she was trying to support my dad's efforts to find a job. She didn't want to mess with his dignity. But eventually, I think, it got to her, her own self-worth. So she started looking for a job, and I asked her, well, why? Why are you looking for a job now? And she said, well, I'm tired of sitting at home with a two-year-old and a crazy barking dog. 
But really, I think what she was saying is, I'm tired of sitting around waiting for your dad to do something that's going to be supportive, so I'm going to do something. And so she did. She got a job. And uh, not long afterwards, my dad got a job too. But it was thousands of miles away across the Pacific Ocean in this place called Vietnam. And um, he had signed on to help a company that was building the American military infrastructure during the, for the war. So that's where he went. Um, and he, brought, he did send some money home. Um, but it wasn't enough, and my mom had this great big debt, it seemed big, um, that was hanging over her head. So she worked and worked and worked. And in addition to her working and my sister and I contributing, um, my sister and I also got to take turns now watching my brothers, cooking the dinners, etc. And this was, you know, this was difficult because for me, I was the oldest, and being the big sister was not all it got, it was cracked up to be. It's like, you know, a baby comes along and people tell you, oh, you're the big sister. Well, the big sister, when you're like 14 years old and you're trying to tell kids, to do what they're supposed to do and they don't listen, what do you do? You just kind of yell and scream. <laughs> and that didn't go anywhere. So I felt pretty ineffective as a big sister. And it was, you know, that we were fighting at home and my youngest brother would go off and leave the neighborhood and we wouldn't know where he was. And, you know, there was a lot of chaos and it was a very unmanageable situation very unmanageable. But I'm also remembering, like even bef before my mom, um, before my dad left, you know, he was unemployed and at home. Um, so uh, one of my jobs was to, after school, go by the babysitter where my youngest brother was. So now my mother had to pay a babysitter in order for her to go to work. So I'm pushing the baby stroller, carrying my school books home from school. And I'm in the eighth grade, but I was trying to feel like very grown up and responsible because my parents were depending on me. So on the one hand, I thought I'm, res I'm a responsible little adult. On the other hand, nobody's listening to me. Nobody's doing what I say. I'm ineffective, I'm no good. So I had a lot of identity crises <laughs> about whether or not I was a good person or not. And this kind of started showing up in my schoolwork. I couldn't concentrate. Um, I used to be a really good student. Now I was falling behind. I had to get tutors. And I dropped out of um, band. And I was just like, I was pretty, I was depressed, but I was lucky too because my mother um, was so supportive, not just financially. She gave me freedom to explore my personal interests, and she did this for all of us. 
I got to ex- she helped me explore literature and poetry and music. She gave me the freedom to go to political um, protests. This was against the same war that my father was. I didn't make any connection, of course, in my head. Um, and she let me go to rock concerts. She let me go up to San Francisco by myself. We were living on the peninsula before I could even drive. I mean, she really had a lot of confidence in me. It was me who didn't have confidence. So anyway, um, that was life for a long time, it seemed, but really just for the rest of my teenage years. Um, It wasn't easy on my brothers or my sister. You know, everything was in chaos, like I said, and it wasn't easy for my mother. She didn't like not being at home with her kids. She didn't like her job either, but she didn't have a choice, and she had to work overtime. And when she worked overtime, we were supposed to put our brothers to bed. Well, one of the brothers wouldn't go to bed until she got home, and so he would fall asleep on the floor in the living room waiting for her. So, you know, kids miss their parents, and she knew that, but it, and it ate her up, but she did what she needed to do. Before my dad left, I have to say, um, my sister and I, like I said, would cook dinners, and at least when I was in the kitchen, um, one of the duties that I had, or favors that I did, was pour drinks for my dad. Well, I'm cooking dinner, he's sitting in the front room, and I'm pouring him drinks. Um, a little more than a, a shot, but in a glass, neat, as they say. And so, um, this was all very um, upsetting to me, but I didn't really understand it. All I knew is I was angry, and I didn't want to talk to him. And so when he went to Vietnam, everybody cried but me. (laughs) I was happy he was leaving. And before he left, he wanted us to be all excited about his going overseas. He didn't mention there was a war going on. He said he was going to go over there, and he was going to you know, land a big deal, and he was going to send for us, and we'd all be living in Thailand. Well, he told us a lot of these stories over the years. He was going to get that big deal, and we would be living in luxury. I remember we drove through, he drove, he took us on a drive through Hillsboro to look at all these houses. I mean, we, it was just a drive-by. We didn't go in any. And my mother is sitting there in the car. She was so mad, she said. Oh, yeah, look at them. And what are they eating? You know, you want to live in a house like this and just be eating beans every day? I mean, you know, get real. <laughs> so she, she wouldn't have any of that. But she was, um, she was very supportive of him um, in some ways and in other ways. By the time he came home five years later, he was not, um, he wasn't, welcome necessarily with welcome you know with open arms and so my parents ended up splitting and um, 
And I was still not very, I wasn't talking to him. I didn't know what to say to him. So I, um, I had a hard time relating to him, but he really, really wanted to be in my life. And, you know, I tried. I would go, you know, to dinner with him. I had him over to my apartment. But there was, a, um, there was one night when he, um, he was just full of sorrow and wanted me to forgive him. And I told him I just couldn't. And that's the last time I saw him. Um, so I just want to fast forward to um, my own personal experience of um, my dad leaving. And when he left, I was in puberty. And my mother had hidden his adult magazines in the garage. And I discovered them. And all of a sudden, I started having really exciting feelings for women. And uh, it was a whole new experience for me. And unfortunately, I didn't know what that was about because I was very young and no one else was talking about it, in the suburbs at least. And so I used my fantasy machine. You know, I just suppress, suppress, suppress. Anything that made me feel guilty about myself, suppress, suppress, suppress. And that's what I did. So, um, so whether my father thought, you know, he was going to end up in luxury or I thought I lived in another world, there seemed to be some disconnect in reality in my family. It must be in the genes. Um, so, um, while I was trying to suppress those feelings, of course, I was um, trying to be a normal teenage kid, and there was a sexual revolution going on right here in the Bay Area. And, you know, if it was in 1969, if you were still a virgin, you were, you know, you were just a loser. So my girlfriends and I did really, you know, ridiculous things. They were just ridiculous in those days. But, you know, we'd go to the beach at night and we would pick up boys. And later in college, we got into a circle of guys who were just, you know, having uh, a party every day after school and we would party with them. But, you know, I just did not find that life satisfying at all. And then I went to the University, San Francisco State, and there was another revolution going on, the political revolution, and that really caught my interest. And so I got involved in radical politics during college and after college. And so after I graduated, uh, in addition to getting a job, I joined a socialist feminist organization here in the city, and um, and then I was able to welcome that appetite for women that had been festering for a very long time. So life was a lot better, better and I got into a real relationship with someone at the age of 23. I don't know if that made me an old maid or not, but um, I was thrilled. 
And there was one relationship, there was another relationship, and then I was in a relationship with someone, and it just, things were not right in that relationship. And we really drifted apart, but I didn't know how to leave. So I started an affair with someone else. And, you know, that did the trick. That helped um, end the relationship with my partner. That was it. But that new relationship didn't last long either because at a certain point, there's a need for emotional trust. And I did not know what or how to access that. There was this wall around me emotionally, and I could not get through it. So, unfortunately, we parted ways, and I moved to New York. And there were a lot of women's bars in the village, and that was fun. Um, so I was there doing radical politics, and one of my comrades um, started flirting with me. He and I had a lot of similar interests, and we actually had fun together. And I was very lonely, and I think he was very horny, and so we just started a relationship, which was very, very hard for me sexually. But, like I said, I was very lonely. And um, I did notice that he smoked pot a lot, but that didn't bother me. I just wasn't interested in it. Um, and after we moved in with each other, and we started fighting really badly, lots and lots of bad fights, um, and it turns out he came from an alcoholic family, and his mother had to work and support the family too. So we had a lot in common, and we, also, we both had a lot of hurt, I think. And so we, um, he moved back to the Bay Area, and then I came back to the Bay Area, and we tried to get back together, but we were just fighting all the time, so we didn't. Um, and then, about six months later, my brother got word that our father was sick, and he, um, he was sick. We didn't know it at the time, but he was dying. And I tried to be a supportive daughter, I sent him a birthday card. He was living across country. And I just, you know, I'm writing this card. And uh, again, you know, that emotional wall was like, it was like back when he was at home and I was 14. And I just could not have any kind feelings towards him. Um, and then when he died, I didn't know where to go that, you know, I had built this wall around me and it was holding, it was like a dam, holding back rage, hurt, tears, bewilderment, confusion, and fear. And it just came all rushing out. And the only person I felt I could turn to was this guy that I had broken up with in New York. And he, um, you know, he had thing, similar experiences as I did. And so he was comforting. And then, of course, once he's there and he's bringing his laundry over, I'm thinking, well, I think we should get married. 
And, uh, you know, in those days, people didn't get married. We didn't get married, but I thought we should get married. Why? Because I wa didn't want to lose them? No. Because I thought if I got married, I would ha be able to have a commitment. I would learn to be an adult. I would, you know, learn to stick around and I could make a relationship work. So, so I got married. Um, and um, then I turned, but just before we got married, he confessed to me that he wasn't just smoking pot anymore. Now he was doing crack. And I was so in denial. I just said, well, that's okay. Well, little did I know what came after that. He stole from us, or he stole money from us. He refused to pay bills and said we should just use a credit card. He didn't want to pay income tax because, you know, we're going to have a revolution. Fuck the IRS. <laughs> so, so yeah, we had a lot of fights again. And if you've ever been in a fight with someone who's a, a crack addict, it's totally irrational. And he was telling me a very familiar message. It was my fault. Everything was my fault. His using was my fault. And, and so I, um, I had to um, figure out what to do. I went to therapy and therapy sent me to 12 steps. And I did the first step that taught me I didn't create this, I can't control it, and I can't cure it. But I couldn't take the second step. And so I, I left. And then I tried to make my marriage work. I thought, oh, maybe I'm a bisexual, even though I'm not really digging this sex thing, maybe that's what I am, because I couldn't figure out how to leave. So instead I thought, well, we should have kids. It didn't work for my mom. <laughs> anyway, we should have kids. Well, we couldn't have kids, thank God. And then I thought, okay, I'll get a master's degree. It didn't change my life at all. Um, so, um, he started getting, you know, he did get off of crack. He went to grad school. He got a PhD. He became a productive member of society. But then he started drinking a lot and doing pot. So he started getting into that more and more and more. And while I got into it a little bit with him, I just, I wasn't following him to the depths that he was going. So I wanted something else. I wanted something more. So what, you know, What's a girl to do? You know, start a relationship with a woman I had hired and we hit it off really well and we had fun and all like that. But then, now, my life was really unmanageable. And so I went to therapy and talk about the inability to make a decision. I went to the therapist and I said, I don't know if I should be 
furnishing the house that we just bought together or leaving my husband. I can't make up my mind. <laughs> well, I never furnished the house and I came back to I came to Al-Anon and in Al-Anon um, I thought, okay, they're going to they're going to show me how I can leave my husband because you know, that's going to be the solution to all my problems. Um, but what you taught me instead was, um, oh, did I mention that my affair was with an alcoholic and a pothead? Um, so I learned how to try to be in a marriage, that arguing with a drunk person is a bad idea that um, having a lover was not going to return me to sanity and that things could change if I let it begin with me. I also learned that keeping my side of the street clean would lead me to freedom and happiness. Happiness was something that I just didn't know, hadn't known for a long time. Not since the days back in San Francisco with my lesbian community. So I worked the steps, all 12 of them, and I worked them again. But I had a hard time making up my mind about leaving because I felt this enormous amount of guilt. What if my leaving prompted him to just be hurt irreparably? He could just go off the deep end, but Alanon reminded me of the first step. I don't have that kind of power over anybody. So if he's going to go, he's going to go. Maybe he'll get better. You don't know. I learned from Alanon that the only person I can, the only person's happiness I can be responsible for is myself, no one else. That was a new concept for me. I also learned that. Um, I deserved um, better than what I had. I learned that I could be loved because you love me. And I learned that um, that taking chances was possible if I had a power greater than myself to believe in. And so finally, I took the plunge. I came to the Living Sober Conference 14 years ago. And... A month later, I told my husband the marriage was not working for me. And I left, and I continued in the program, and I'm still here. And I learned a really important lesson, which is love does not have to hurt. Love can be accepted without fear. And so I have found a loving wife and we have a loving marriage and even when we don't agree I don't have to worry that we could be headed down a road to insanity because insanity is something I experienced for a long long time and because of you I don't have to go there anymore so I just want to say thank you to Living Sober and to all of my friends and family.